possible if you haven't worked it out already, this morning we're talking about names, their meaning and significance. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a terrible memory for names. When I was uh, gainfully employed, I used to have to go to various functions, and often you would get introduced to someone, and they'd say, this is John, and then you stand there talking to John, and after a while, I'm thinking, John, 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 was it John? And then someone else would come along and say, and expect me to introduce the person I'd been speaking to, and my mind would be racing, thinking, did they say John, or was it Tom, or was it Ron? <laughs> and I'd say, oh, you two, just introduce yourselves. It's much easier that way. But there is someone in this church who has a wonderful memory for names, and at the risk of embarrassing him, it's John Withers. Now, way back in... <laughs> Way back in 1974, some of you youngsters won't even remember it, that period, it uh, sounds like the Dark Ages. In fact, it probably was the Dark Ages, and the blackouts and all that sort of thing going on. But way back in 1974, I was a young law student, uh, and I came to Godalming to study law at the Guildford uh, College of Law, and um, I went to Queen Street Baptist Church, and there I met John Withers. I was there for a relatively short period of time and then I went off of my way and followed my career around different parts of the country. And I think it was early, uh, late 1990 when I came back down into the Surrey area as part of my career move and I came to this church. And who should I meet at the door? Lovely beaming smile, big handshake. John says, hello Martin, lovely to see you. <laughs> now that's about 16, 17 years gap. Now, how does someone like that have a memory for names, whereas I can't remember someone's name two seconds after they've told me? Uh, well done, John. <laughs> you haven't lost it. <laughs> but I also remember one of John's sermons. He preached, um, this must be 26 or so years ago, on names. And he quoted the um, nursery rhyme, children's nursery rhyme. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And John thumped the lectern, and we all shot up straight in our pews. And uh, he said, don't believe a word of it. You know, you might recover from the odd beating, but being called names will stay with you for a long time, possibly for the rest of your life. It does hurt. And in this modern age of electronic communication, it's an interesting point that we should all bear in mind because it's so easy to ping off something, some tweet, some email that's got a sort of rude comment in it, some sort of nasty comment, um, but it's not Christ-like, is it? And I don't know about you, but I've got to the stage in my life sometimes where I start shouting at the radio or the television and I call people all sorts of names, especially when I see the politicians on there, you stupid idiot. <laughs> But it's not, you know, it's not becoming, is it? It's not what we should be doing as Christians. So it's an important thing to remember in this uh, day and age. So I thought I'd start with a little quiz. Now, um, I don't know about you, but when you're a celebrity, sometimes you have to have a name changed from the one that you're born with. Oh. So my assistant here, oh, he's put them up already. I want you to tell me, how are you... Webb is more commonly known as? Richard. Richard. Reginald Dwight is more commonly known as? Elton John. Archibald Leach is more commonly known as? Carrie Grant. 
Robert Alan Zimmerman is more commonly known as Bob Dylan. Well done. You've all earned yourself a free cup of tea or coffee. <laughs> what do you mean it's always free? I always, I always pay for mine. <laughs> right, the next set. Karen Elaine Johnson is more commonly known as... Oh, silence. No, lower down. That's low. That's uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Francis Gum is more commonly known as Judy Garland. Marion Morrison, you've already got it. Is more commonly known as John Wayne. I guess you'd grow up to be a rough, tough cowboy if you had a name called Marion. Morris Micklewhite, more commonly known as Michael Caine. Not a lot of people know that. And finally, Nitram Drofnard is more commonly known as <laughs> Martin Dunford. Red <laughs> back to front. Now, my mother told me that my name, Martin, was named, I was named after Marty Wilde. All you youngsters won't know who Marty Wilde was, but Marty Wilde and the Wild, Wildcats were the sort of 50s, 60s equivalent of, sort of Cliff Richard, Billy Fury, Tommy Steele. Still singing today, he had a, has a daughter called Kim Wilde who still sings. His real name when uh, he was in Sunday school and being taught by my mother was Reginald Leonard Smith. But the, obviously she latched on to the name Marty Wilde when I was born in the early 50s and uh, named me after him apparently. In fact, my mother was quite disappointed when I subsequently found out and told her that actually the name Martin derives from the ancient Roman god of uh, called Mars, which is a god of war and a god of fire. Oh. <laughs> Not quite the same as Marty Wilde and the Wildcats. But in celebrity life, a name change seems to be more the rule than the exception. And people's names matter. Your name is your identity. And you want that identity to be right. So this morning, we're going to be looking at names, but names changes with a difference. The names we will look at today are each name is given and chosen by God. Now, a name change is significant. And it's well known that people's names are often important in the Bible. So when Adam calls his wife Eve, it's significant and we should pay attention. The name Eve comes from a Hebrew name called Chawa, meaning to breathe. It's also related to the word, Hebrew word Chaya, meaning to live. And if you look in the book of Genesis, Eve and Adam were the first humans, and God created Eve by bringing her to life, causing her to breathe, to live, by creating her from one of Adam's ribs to become his companion. And later on in the Old Testament, when Rebekah gives birth to twins and names one of them Jacob, which the name means supplanter or deceiver, that name too is significant. In the Old Testament, Jacob, who was later called Israel, is the son of Isaac and Rebekah and the father of the 12 founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jacob apparently was born holding his twin brother Esau's heel. 
and his name is explained as having a number of meanings, either holder of the heel, or supplanter, or deceiver. And when you read Genesis 27, you will find that he would go on to twice deprive his elder brother of his rights as the firstborn son. And you can read that in Genesis 27, verse 36. Now coming up is a name to conjure with. Later on in the Bible, when God tells the prophet Isaiah to name his son Maha Shalal Hashbaz, there's good reason for it. Not only is it the longest name in the Bible, but it doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, does it really? Not at least for English-speaking people. But in Isaiah chapter 8, God orders Isaiah to take a large scroll and to write on it with an ordinary pen the name of Macha Shalal Hashbaz. And then when Isaiah has a son, God tells him to name his son Maha Shalal Hashbaz. And God also tells him that before his son could even say the words mummy or daddy, that the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria and his invading armies. And it's a warning to the people living in those areas, living their hedonistic lifestyle and turning their back on God. He's using the name of Isaiah's son to warn his people. The name means quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. And then further on in the Bible, when Hosea's wayward wife bears a son, the Lord says, name him Lo-Ami. And that means not my people. So clearly here, there's a heart-wrenching point is being made because Hosea's wife and the Israelites had turned their back on God. And in the New Testament, when Jesus is born, God also tells us through the prophet Isaiah that he shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But also there's so many other names, aren't there, for God or for Jesus. I mean, you could preach a whole sermon on just that. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in our Bible reading this morning from John's Gospel, it illustrated the difficulties that the Jewish authorities had with understanding who John the Baptist was. They came and questioned him, and they said, are you the Christ? He said, no, I am not the Christ. They asked if he was Elijah. He denied being Elijah. They asked if he was a prophet. He said, no. He said this, he said, I am a voice calling out in the wilderness, making straight the way for the Lord. John the Baptist said to the officials, among you stands one you do not know, and that he, John the Baptist, was not worthy even to be Christ's slave, to perform the humble task of unfastening his shoes. So hopefully now, having heard about all these examples of people's names and their identities, we should begin to understand their importance. 
and we should be especially interested when people's names are changed because it's always a very significant step. For example, we find Abram and Sarai renamed as Abraham and Sarah right after God renews his covenant with them to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. We find Jacob renamed Israel right after he spent a night wrestling with God. He encountered God and as a result God changed his name. He was no longer Jacob the supplanter or deceiver but he was to be called Israel, the one who wrestles with God. And when in Hosea his son Loamai, meaning not my people, is renamed by God as you are my people, it signals a turning point not only in the book but in the relationship with God. But it also works both ways. The Babylonians understood very well the significance of names. And we've heard when we've been studying those passages of recent weeks about uh, in Nehemiah, when they came and conquered Jerusalem and they took the people of Jerusalem into captivity, they were careful to change their names so as to completely cut off their former identities. And we see this at the beginning of the book of Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge, and he is renamed Belteshazzar, which honours the pagan god, Bel, instead of Israel's god. And the same went for his th three friends. Hananiah was renamed Shadrach, Mishael was given the name Meshach, and Azariah became Abednego. Meshach, Shadrach, and when we were in Sunday school as naughty children, we say, off to bed you go. <laughs> Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the same three officials who refused to bow down to the gigantic golden image created by King Nebuchadnezzar, but they would only worship the one true God. So name changes in the Bible always mark very significant events, and they often flag up big changes in relationship with God. I guess the, probably the nearest analogy we have today is, um, is with marriage, when it's still customary, at least in English-speaking uh, countries, for a woman to change her surname to that of the husband. Now, whatever you think about this patriarchal system and its practical implications, it does mark a very significant event. The change of name is a very public statement, a statement of a change of relationship, a commitment to a new life. The old single life is put behind and the new name marks the start of a new joint life. And in the same way, when God changes people's names, people's names in the Bible, it marks the start of a new relationship or a new phase in relationship with him. Our holy scriptures give us some sense of the importance of names. The names given to us and our ancestors and what we call God. Now think about this. 
Every time we say the Lord's Prayer, we are reminded about the importance of God's name. As we pray to God, we say, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, or holy, be your name. This is, of course, highlighted in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number three, I think it is. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And this is a very much an ingrained part of Jewish tradition, as the name of God is believed to be too sacred to be spoken. Some Orthodox Jews, when referring to God, call God Hashem, which means the name. And you can see this at play in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, being Jewish himself and writing to a Jew Jewish audience, doesn't say the kingdom of God, but rather the kingdom of heaven, the polite way of speaking, respectfully avoiding direct mention of God's name. And now we move forward to the name change for Simon. Now you can imagine the scene. Andrew, Simon's brother, has just met Jesus. And the first thing he does is rush back to find his brother Simon to tell him. You can imagine the excitement. We found the Messiah. You can imagine him shaking him and saying, come on, shake a leg, look lively. We found the Messiah. Simon going, what, really? Have you? Are you sure? And then he brought Simon to Jesus. And in John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42, it says this. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So the first thing that Jesus does is to change Simon's name. Now this might be all a bit baffling until we remember that Jesus and his disciples spoke Aramaic, but when the Gospels were written down, they were written in Greek. And of course today we read them in English. So John gives us both the Aramaic and Greek forms of the name. The Aramaic word kepha, and the Greek, Petros, both mean rock. Jesus is saying to Simon, son of John, I am changing your name. From now on, you will be called rock. But you will need to understand that this is more than simply a nickname. I mean, Jesus isn't saying, oh, I've just remembered I've got another disciple called Simon, Simon the Zealot. Look, let's not confuse you two together. I'll give you a different name. No, he's not saying that. We can see from reading Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus reconfirms the renaming of Peter. He says this. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And some of the disciples say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But listen to the response Peter gives. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, 
saying, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter will be a rock, not only by name, but by nature as well. He will be foundational in the church that Jesus is planning to build. So what was rocky about Peter? What did Jesus see in him that prompted him to call him a rock? Well, frankly speaking, Peter isn't portrayed as very solid in the Gospels. You can look at the occasion when Peter steps out of the boat on the uh, Lake Galilee and tries to walk towards Jesus at Jesus' bidding and begins to sink because he loses faith. Glug, glug, glug. And he cries out, Lord, save me. Now, whilst he didn't exactly sink like a rock, it wasn't exactly a solid performance, was it? Then you look at the passage in Matthew 16, verse 21, when Jesus tries to explain to his disciples about his impending death, that he will have to suffer much and must be killed and on the third day will be raised to life. And in response, Peter rebukes Jesus and says, oh, no, 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 this will never happen. Straight after which, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. It's a big change, isn't it, from a short while ago, calling him the rock on which the church will be built, to saying, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. Peter has deeply misunderstood Jesus' plan to die and tries to argue him out of it. So here, Peter is not so much like a foundational rock, but a stumbling block to Jesus. And in other episodes, we find Peter constantly falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prays his heart out. We find him rebuked for, by Jesus for cutting off someone's ear with a sword at the time of Jesus' arrest. And then we find Peter denying Jesus just before his death. Three times he tells a blatant lie. When they question Peter in the courtyard about whether he knows Jesus, he says, he calls down curses on himself and he swears to them, I do not know this man. But it wasn't the lies that mattered so much as his betrayal of his friend and his Lord abandoning him at his last. And later we find Peter babbling with fright at the transfiguration, and so on and so on. Some rock. After a while, you might be, begin to think that Jesus was being a bit ironic when he named him Peter, the rock. A bit like Eddie the Eagle Edwards. Remember him? Britain's favorite ski jumper who did anything but soar like an eagle. But you see, Jesus saw something in Peter. Knowing that all this was to come, what was it that prompted Jesus to declare Peter a rock? Well, a passage in Matthew 16 is key. Despite all his human failings, 
Jesus could make Peter rock-like because he knew and trusted what <coughs> sorry he knew and trusted one thing when Jesus asked his disciples who do you say I am Simon Peter answered you are the Christ the son of the living God and it is this statement that prompts prompts Jesus famous words that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church Humanly speaking, Peter was far from solid. But he did have one solid, unshakable belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was enough. And with that foundation, Jesus knew that he could build on Peter a church that would shake the world. So when Jesus first met Simon, he knew what was coming. He knew exactly what kind of man Simon was, yet he named him Peter the Rock, a name which has stuck for over 2,000 years. And it's highly significant that Jesus did this when he first met Peter. Peter did not earn the name for himself, but Jesus first gave him the name and then gave him the ability to live up to it. And that's how he always deals with us. Jesus always takes the initiative. We never deserve what he gives us. But it doesn't stop him giving. And that's what grace means. God's goodness to undeserving people. Now I have a question. Do you ever wish you had a new name? Do you sometimes long for a completely new start? A new identity in which all your failings and disappointments and bad circumstances are left behind and you can start again with a clean slate. Sometimes a complete change of identity might seem like the only way out for someone with a huge debt or a criminal record or whose misdeeds have been spread all over the internet. Leaving the old name and the old life behind might seem very attractive. Moving on without any consequences. A new name. A new start. It happens all the time, doesn't it, in crime thrillers. Fake passports, fake ID, an anonymous life. But not many of us, I guess, are in the position where we feel we need to do something so drastic. How wrong we are. Because God has a record. He has a list of our debts. He sees and knows every misdeed, every unclean thought in our minds and hearts. And they are all in his book against our names, waiting to be read out out on judgment day. So how can we escape? If only we could have a new name. We need to appear before God with a new name so that when God turns to the page, He doesn't find all the old junk filed against our old name. Instead, he finds a blank page with no charge against us. A clean record. The old record against us, lost forever. Now, it's fanciful, it's unjust, and frankly, it's clutching at straws. But this is exactly what Jesus promises us. 
In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, verse 17, in its unique symbolic language, Jesus says this, To him who overcomes, I will give a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. In the ancient world, jurors at a trial would vote holding up stones. If they thought the person was guilty, they'd hold up a black stone. If they thought the person was innocent, they'd hold up a white stone. Jesus says that our trial before God, we will be declared innocent. Not because we are innocent, but because we will be tried under a different name, a name with no record attached to it. We will be given a white stone with a new name on it. All our failings, all our crimes against God will be lost forever, recorded against the old name. Our record will be clean. So how do we get this new name? In just the way as Simon became Peter. If we encounter Jesus for ourselves, if we continue to trust that he is the Christ, that he's the only one who can save us, then he will give us a new name and a new start. We sometimes sing a hymn, don't we? The first line says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And those words are a direct quote from scripture in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. It says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now Peter was just as fallible as you and I, and yet Jesus made him the rock on which he built the church and gave him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gave him a new start, time and time again, which he signified by giving him a new name. If we keep trusting that only Jesus can save us, then like Simon Peter, he will give us a new start and a new name. We're going to sing now a song which is called How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. <laughs>